Arcadia Issue 16 just got released, including an excellent article called The Black Wheeled, which we're going to talk about. I want to talk about Alpha Stream's video, Success in RPGs, that he just put up on YouTube. We're going to talk more about Monsters of the Multiverse and some of the interesting choices that were made. And we're going to talk about Patreon questions for May of 2022. All of this today on the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I am your pal, Mike Shea from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things D&D. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material, video previews, previews of upcoming stuff from the Sly Flourish Empire, and all kinds of exclusive material. But most of all, they help me put on shows like this. So to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. This past week, Arcadia is a monthly magazine put out by MCDM. This is Matt Colville's company. James Intercasso is the lead editor for Arcadia, and they are up to issue 16. I have had the joy of uh, being published in it now twice. First time was for an article that I did offering up some NPC rivals called the Grim Accord. But I also, in this most recent issue, Arcadia 16, look at that cover. Man, the cover to Arcadia is always really, really cool. And in this issue, they, they usually have about three major topics. In this one, there's Masterwork Artisans by Jamie Fleckno. I don't think I'm going to get these pronunciations of the names right. The Crowned Genie by Ahmad Algebri, And The Black Wheeled by your very own Mike Shea. So, yeah, I have had the uh, distinct pleasure to be able to write for MCDM uh, and write for Arcadia now twice. And The Black Wheeled is the most recent of these. You can get access to Arcadia by joining the MCDM Patreon. It is by far the best way to get access to Arcadia. If you sign up for the Patreon, you get access to all of their previous issues and all future issues. Or you can buy the issues one-on-one, but I think each issue costs about as much as subscribing for a month and getting access to everything. So it's definitely worthwhile to subscribe to the Patreon. Even though I am a writer for this, I subscribe to the Patreon as well, so I get access to all of their great stuff. But it's, it's really, really cool. So the Black Wheeled, I don't remember exactly how the Black wheeled idea came about but i was i i pitched it as a how about a street and this is big spoilers big spoilers for the black wheeled so if you are a player who is playing or planning to run it or planning to f- play in it you probably don't want to listen i've already spoiled a, a little bit of it it's about a street size mimic right and i was like okay this is kind of cool you have this sort of ramshackly part of the whatever city that you're in and in that ramshackly part is a street that is an entire mimic the street eats people Right. And I like this idea of sort of a, it sort of lives subterranean, but not right. And it's sort of the street sort of supports it. Right. The people of the street support this thing. And then I was like, you know, could I take the false Hydra idea and put that in here? And I did. And so this is my homage to the false Hydra. The false Hydra is a concept that has been out in, been written about sort of, it was originally written about the, the, the earliest instance I could find of the false Hydra was written about in, in the blog Goblin, Goblin Punch, I think almost like 11 years ago. Let's see. Yeah, it was 2014. There was an article about it. This is the first time that I had seen uh, the article about the false Hydra. And the idea behind a false hydra is you have a monster. There's different ways to handle it. And I'm, I, I have a particular way that I handle it in, in this one, which is, look at it. By the way, look at the art on this other stuff. I haven't had a chance to really look at the other articles in here. But boy, they, they knock it out of the park when it comes to artwork. And they, I, one thing I can absolutely say with, with authority is they play test the hell out of the stuff that they put out. They have a dedicated play test team with a dedicated paid full-time play test coordinator. So they do a lot of work to make sure that the stuff that's coming out in here, I think the, 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 the work that's coming in Arcadia is fantastic stuff. 
and I really, really recommend it. I just haven't had a chance to look at it yet, but it looks really great. Genies, man. Anyway, so uh, the idea behind a false hydra is you essentially have a monster that eats the memories of people instead of just the people, which means it's able to protect itself by uh, those that it eats, memories of those people. This is my version of it a little bit. There's different ways to kind of handle it. When the, in this case, the Blackwheeled, when the Blackwheeled eats somebody, all the memories of that person disappear from the people who knew them. Which means if you, in one of the scenarios that I have in here is you have a woman who comes to the characters. She says, my sister's been disappeared. She went to this street, Mercy Street, and she was looking for something there. And now she's gone. I haven't found her, right? Could you meet me down, down there? Would, would you meet me down at the tavern? There's a tavern there. I'd like to meet with you there and we can figure out what's going on. And you're like, sure. And you go to the tavern and she's like, oh, hello. Good to see you guys again. And you go, great. What about your sister? And she goes, what do you mean? What about my sister? Right. And you're like, you brought us here because you have a sister. And you're like, no, I don't. I've never I've been. I'm an only child. Right. And they're like, why are you here? And she's like, I like it here. And I thought we'd get together and, and meet. And you're like, yeah, but you. Right. And it's because her sister was alive when she comes to you first time and is dead and eaten by the black wheel the second time. And by that point, she doesn't remember the sister anymore. And you never knew the sister. So you're still like, what's going on? Right. And. You can play with this, that other characters, other things can start to, start to disappear. But the real power tool, if you can pull it off, and if your characters are on board, and that's a tricky bit, because this is, you're definitely doing some, you're, you're definitely doing some gaslighting in this, right? You, you really want to make sure that screwing with your players like this is acceptable. I, I don't know exactly how to bring it up in a session zero without blowing it, but you need to have some kind of conversation to make sure that your players are going to be okay with being gaslit like this, but you essentially eventually have it that you can have uh, characters go missing. And the way you do this is you say like, oh, there's, there's, you know, there's five players, right? Five players, five characters. But at one point they're like sitting around and they're looking around and there's six camp, there's six uh, bedrolls. And they're like, why is there a six bedroll? And they start to go through it and they start to find information about this six member of their party that has been with them the whole time. Right. And they're like, who is this person? They're like, look, they have a journal. They fought in this part. Like they helped defeat that other creature that we fought. They talk about how you saved their lives. And they're like, oh my God, we had a six member and they got eaten by the black wheel, right? Or they got, they got eaten. And so you, you start to play with the idea that the players aren't remembering things. One of the other things, one of the, the gaslighty bits that you do is you really don't say that there was a sister you're like there wasn't a sister i don't know what you guys are talking about and like you said i wrote in my notes that we're here to meet a sister you're like no she wanted you to kind of explore this place but there wasn't any sister right and then later right you're like maybe she gets eaten by the black wheeled right and so you're like no you didn't meet with any npc named that there wasn't any npc like and so you're you're gaslighting the players now hopefully eventually they're gonna pick up like oh man like we don't remember that person and you're like your character doesn't remember meeting anybody like that so then like how the hell are you supposed to run this thing Right. How do you how are you supposed to run this if constantly all of the information that you have that's leading you towards the goal is getting eaten? And the answer is physical evidence. The black wheel can eat memories of people, but it can't eat physical evidence, which means they can find pieces of paper or they can see things on the wall. that said the black wheel is real or like I, I lived. Right. Right. Like, you know, I, I, I am. I was right. And with a name of a person. And so they can get him and it's like, no, there was a person. We just don't remember it. Right. And they start to put it together until eventually they come to a big conclusion and they fight a giant street size mimic. So if you don't want to do all of the 
gaslighting and you don't want to do all of the crazy memory stuff, you can skip all that and have a nice, big, juicy CR-12 action-oriented monster that was, you know, that that it's, boy, we went back and forth a lot on the stats on this. So, and it was, again, heavily playtested and people really enjoyed playtesting it. So a great, big, juicy monster. We also created this thing called a Black Wheeled Mimic. And a Black Wheeled Mimic is essentially a normal mimic, but it has a tendril that connects to the Black Wheeled. And the idea is that the Black Wheeled has people or objects that it's connected to all throughout town that uses a telepathic mind wipe on people to keep the people of the village that surrounds the the, the black wheel in control and they don't even really know what's happening and the black wheel is starting to get to the point of being able to recreate people so some of the mimics are sort of like doppelgangers they're sort of like waxy people that can't really they, they can't move right and they can't talk yet because he hasn't figured it out yet they haven't figured it out yet but uh, we have a slight variant of the the regular mimic stat block that is designed for the black wheel mimics so really fun article to do jane working with james of course is an absolute pleasure of mine it was really fun to put together it was great to see it evolve it's a hard work like they boy mcdm is a fantastic company to work for but they make you work for your money because you do a lot of revisions you go back and forth a lot you get a lot of stuff multiple rounds of play testing and everything else but it makes for a very very strong article so i hope you will check out arcadia issue 16 again best way to get it is on the mcdm uh, patreon and really really fun thing to do and i look forward to working with mcdm in the future so uh thanks for that my friend Teos, Teos Abadia Alpha Stream, did a is starting a new video series on YouTube called Success in RPGs. And Teos has himself had great success in RPGs. I will paste this in the show notes. And you can find a link to this video uh, in the show notes below. This is like a, a, a topic. I, it's not a topic I focus a lot on myself. I am when I think about the value that I provide to the world, uh, I like to think that the value that I provide to the world is helping Dungeon Masters run great games it is my focus the, the the purpose of Sly flourish is to help dungeon masters run great games it's not that i don't care about people who want to produce content it's not that i don't have opinions or thoughts about people who want to become uh writers or de designers in this space i want to help everybody out but it, it i also have to kind of focus my time and attention on what i want to do i did do a show myself where i talked about like uh, yeah, how to be quote unquote successful in rpgs it was sort of a one-off thing i think i was doing it to test microphones and stuff but i was like yeah this is a fun show so it is online you'll find a link to that in the show notes below as well there's a big difference between what teos did though and what i did so I, I, at the beginning of my show, and when I was talking to my wife about the topic, like, how do you be successful in RPGs? And I just did, I think it was like an hour and a half video about it, where Teos is going to be doing a whole bunch of them, is the first thing was, how do you define success, right? What makes success to you? How do you, how do you define that? And my argument was like, there's like these layers of success. There's everything from, I wrote a thing and two other people enjoyed it, to Wizards of the Coast hired me as a senior developer, right? And there's not only are there like ranges of success, there's ranges of probabilities that you'll meet those levels of success as well. So what, what Teos did that I think is great is he took that idea. Or he didn't, I don't think he took it from me. We talk about it all the time, right? But he certainly has his own, his own thoughts about this. And his own thought was, how do, you, how do you define success? And what tools can he give you to help you define success? And so in this video, he actually has like a worksheet that talks about all of the different kinds of success, short-term, medium-term, long-term success, all the different things that you can do uh, to, try to, to try to get it down, to, to, to write it out, right? To, to actually plan it. So where I'm kind of just throwing ideas around there about like, oh, you know, what does success mean? And what does it mean to you? Which I think is valuable. He actually says like, you know, write it down, like figure it out, which is a really, really valuable tool, I think. If people are sitting down, because then the other part, which I would add in, I talked to him about this and he was like, yeah, is that it also helps to ask yourself, as you look at these levels of success, 
can I, what, what's my likelihood? Am I, am I in control of this? Right. Do I, you can't make wizards hire you as a senior developer, right? You can't make them do it. Right. You, you know, so how much do you have control over and how much do you not? And are you setting up goals that you don't really have control over? Right. And how will you feel if you don't reach it? Because through no fault of your own. So that's where like, I don't have like sales goals, right? When, even when I do a Kickstarter, I don't have a goal of like, I have to make so much. I mean, I have the low goal, right? You know, and I would love to get more so that I can make a better product and everything like that. But I don't, I don't say like, I really want to reach X, you know, and then hope I get there because I don't know if I'm going to reach it. Right. And I would rather be successful by saying like, do I know what I can reach? Do I know what I can get to? I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat conservative in my thoughts about only in, only in my thoughts about how to get my hands around stuff that I can actually do something with. So I don't plan on. You know, like I didn't plan on MCDM saying, hey, we'd love you to work on an issue of Arcadia, right? If that happens, great. If it doesn't happen, that's okay too. There's fantastic authors out there. So I don't make it a goal to work for MCDM, right? But if it is, that's okay. And you can still say, well, what do I need to do to get there? Well, I need to, basically, I need to have James Intercastle see the kind of work that I do, right? And I need to get on his list of, of, of potential people. How do I do that? Like when, you know, so there's like, there's, there's things like that. So really, really cool. I can't wait to see Teos take on other topics in this. I mean, this is a fantastic topic. I really enjoyed the video and I'm really looking forward to this series continuing. So take a look. If you are interested, if this, and, and many, many people are, many people that are DMs also say like, you know, I could sell this in the DMs guild or I can make a RPG or I could build a campaign source book that I would be a lover. You know, lots of people have ideas about how to get into this industry. And I think Teos is going to do a, a really fantastic job of helping people look at this hobby, understand it, understand what it means, watch out for the pitfalls and all sorts of things. So check out that video. It's really, really cool. So I had a long section of last week's video where we talked about the new Morden Kanan's Monsters of the Multiverse. And I talked about a lot of different things, but I don't know that I talked about everything that I wanted to talk about because there were other little aspects of the design that I thought are interesting and worth taking note of as a DM. One of the things I struggle with is this isn't just an opportunity for me to complain about monster design or to, you know, hey, why wasn't I consulted, right? A very common, hey, I wanted it to be a certain way and it wasn't a certain way. That's not really useful. But what is useful is like helping DMs, you know, for, so the first question is like, is this something worth considering or not, right? And I, I, I got a little bit of flack last time because they were like, well, you didn't really make a choice, right? And I still say, well, it's not up to me to make your choice, right? You can make your choice. I think there are questions to be answered. Like if you don't have Mordenkainen's and Volos and you want a new pile of monsters, they're good monsters, right? So I would pick it up if you didn't have it, if you didn't have the monsters any other way. Do I think you should pick it up if you already have Volos and Mordenkainen's? Maybe not. I don't know. That, you you got to ask yourself if you really want the new stat blocks or not. I did. Right. But I buy everything. So that's a question. So so there's a little bit of that. Is it worth getting? When when is it worth getting? And I think it's definitely worth getting if you don't already have Volos and Morning Canons. If you already have Volos and Morning Canons and you don't really want to drop 50 bucks on, if you're if you're hesitant to buy it after already having Volos and Morning Canons, I, I probably wouldn't buy it. If on the other hand you look at it and say, no, I really want to do I really want to see the new monster design and I do want monsters that are easier to run, stuff like that, then it's probably worth picking up. But then there's some other interesting little design bits. There's probably one area that I wanted to spend uh, a, a fair bit of time on, and that's looking at NPCs in particular, and, and, and even more particular, NPC spellcasters. And that's where we have like warlocks, wizards, war priests, and stuff like that. And the interesting thing about these, so like the war priest, I really dig, right? The war priest, like a, not a big stat block, right? It's a nice small stat block, but you have this war priest, challenge rating nine, good, good number of hit points, 
and you know maul attacks and uses holy fire right and then the maul attack does you know 20 points of damage per hit so 40 damage just from that and holy fire does 12 damage and blind and remember you can throw holy fire first blind somebody and get advantage on your attack it's a really good thing and it still has like a good pile of spells if it wants to be able to to throw some spells around right it's just the spells are not what makes its challenge rating appropriate and it can throw a heal spell around on some other creatures that are nearby so you know nice straightforward thing feels like a war priest works out still has spells but it's doing things and i guess with a priest it's a little different like with a with a cleric it's a little different that like you know we can see a war cleric character kind of acts like this it's hitting and doing stuff so it feels almost paladin like right but that's cool same thing with warlocks warlocks are pretty straightforward but you see that has like these things like bewildering word right this is only a challenge rating four right it makes two rapier attacks or uses bewildering word the interesting thing is that the rapier of its attacks does force damage like does i don't think any character can do force damage as a warlock but the npc can right and then it's got its pile of spells including dimension door hole, person charm monster and stuff like that and the thing to remember is that these spells are not you don't have to use these spells in order for it to be effective in a battle and then it's got misty escape which is sort of like a misty step but a reaction teleports and goes invisible cool stuff right warlock of the fiend bigger right three scimitar attacks Six slashing damage plus 14 fire damage. Good, good slashy, good slashy warlock build. Uh, does not uh, hellfire, right? It can make a, it basically do like a necrotic fireball sort of thing that blows up. Not quite as big as, and then fiendish rebuke. And then your great old one, uh, which is challenge rating six, two dagger attacks, five piercing plus 10 psychic damage when it hits you with a thing, right? Pretty good. And a dagger, the dagger attacks are interesting because it is both ranged and melee. You can either stab or throw. So you can do 30 points of damage by throwing a pair of these like psychic daggers. And you're like, yeah, it doesn't have Eldritch Blast. Isn't that interesting? And so part of it is like, well, they're different. But this gets to the point, which is NPC spellcasters are not like character spellcasters at all. Is that weird? Steven, thank you, Steven. Steven gets to this point which is like you kind of think that a warlock npc should act like a character but it doesn't right these like i don't know that there's any powers that you can get where you can throw daggers that do piercing plus a pile of psychic damage on top of it i don't think right it's a little warlocks are still because they're kind of weird characters anyway and there's a lot of different variants when you have all their subclasses you can almost get away with like oh it's just a weird warlock but where it really gets strange are wizards and it gets weird with wizards in a few ways. Let's look at the abjurer wizard, right? So wizards, you would think, operate under the same in-world principles that character wizards operate in. They should memorize spells. They have spell books. All, all of their power kind of comes from these memorized spells that they've got. They've got cantrips and things, but those are lower power. And instead, what we get are... NPC wizards who operate completely fundamentally differently than character wizards. And this is where sort of my cognitive, my, my cognitive connection breaks down because it's like, well, a character wizard had, was probably an apprentice to an NPC wizard, but that NPC wizard didn't operate at all like the character wizard did. They didn't memorize, they don't memorize spells during the day. They don't have cantrips, they have arcane burst, right? Arcane burst is a melee or ranged spell attack. So they can hit you, they can just bop you on the head and they do 20 points of force damage. Well, there's no spell that a character has that I know of that does anything even remotely like this. And you can't learn it from them. So if this, if you have a friendly NPC abjurer who does this stuff and the player's like, oh, what spell is that? They're like, oh, I don't know, I just do it, right? And that gets to another point. Force blast, same thing. It's kind of like a fireball, but it does force damage, I guess, right? 
uh 36 force damage right can you imagine that like how much a character would love to have a four it's a 20 foot cube originating from the abjurer dc 16 failed safe takes 36 force it's like a cone of cold but force so that's interesting part of me is like what does that work but i mean part of me is also like i'm the one that also also talks about how you should reskin monsters anyway and you should totally be able to do a force ball and you know but like i do it so i, I ran a monster that i kind of made up on wednesday and it was a plague bringer were rat right were rat plague plague bringer and it was like a were rat who was kind of a spellcaster who wore a plague mask because it was cool and could throw like poison stuff and he basically had poison bolts right but like no one was expecting that the plague bringer was going to have a spell book right they didn't even know if it was a warlock or a sorcerer or a wizard they didn't know what it was they just knew it was a plague bringer and it was throwing poison bolts right so in that circumstance it breaks but when you have like a wizard like an abjure wizard like well there are abjure wizard player characters and they operate a certain way and this one does not i'm 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 past the worrying about like the twice a day once a day sort of things for the spell casting one right and worrying about like does it ever because like when it, when, when you're using these spells you're not going to worry about which spells they have memorized and upcasting and stuff like that it's fine to just have regular spells but the weird bits are when you have abilities like this that characters have no access to that i mean they're good so so the the flip side is the stat blocks are really good that i can run them they're easy they're easy to run they're straightforward to run one thing that is a really nice bit about a lot of the, the what i will refer to, the mechanics that they put here is it operates really well in theater of the mind right doing an arcane burst against uh multiple targets right three arcane burst attacks well, I don't have to track a lightning bolt and figure out if a lightning bolt can hit three characters and then get into an argument with the players about whether they were in a line or not. I could just attack three targets and say, make plus eight to attack each one. Some of you, and then those that are hit take 20 points of force damage, right? Way easier to run in theater of the mind. So I like the simplicity of that sort of attack because it works well in theater of the mind. I can also do it, of course, on a grid, right? I don't, I don't I'm not stuck to a theater of mind. And yeah, and, and, and Cave and Clave says they hit really hard. Right. This hits really hard, which is good because you want monsters that hit appropriate to their challenge lady. And typically they don't. Right. But then there's some other bits. So here's here's a good one. One bit that I think is, is this is where like, so why are we arguing about this? Because as a DM, it's worth you thinking about this. And I'll tell you why. What happens when your conjurer wizard says, I'm going to summon an elemental and the player says, I counterspell. And you say, you can't. And he goes, why not? And he says, because it's not a spell, it's an ability right summon elemental is an ability he's not casting the spell summon elemental he is performing his once a day ability summon elemental and he goes what do you mean he's got an ability he's a wizard he's a conjurer wizard those are spells that's how wizards work wizards memorize spells you say no not not according to the way wizards of the coast talks about it wizards of the coast says these are not spells these are abilities they also like to say things like this is how we've always done it because of like flame skulls doing scorching rays right you don't want to have that conversation with your players when it happens you need you need what i do is in my session zero for when i was running wild beyond the witch light some of this kind of mechanic is inside spellcaster monsters in uh wild beyond the witch light i sat down at the beginning of wild beyond the witch light and said hey i want you to know Wizards of the Coast has changed how certain monsters, particularly spellcasting monsters, operate. A lot of times those spellcasting monsters have abilities that look a lot like spells but aren't spells and thus are not counterable. And I said, but I have a good news, which is they also won't be countering you. So you can't counter them on their abilities, but they also won't be counterspelling on you. And that's good because I, I don't like counterspell anyway, right? I, I'm never a fan of it. I think it's a big wet balloon. Anyway. <laughs>
like a shooting off when somebody casts a spell on both sides. So, hey, good news. You can't counter either way, right? But then another interesting one is like summon elemental, right? So the conjurer wizard casts summon elemental, summons an earth elemental. The elemental appears, obeys it, right? Lasts for an hour until the conjurer dies or the conjurer dismisses the bonus action. Guess what that summon elemental doesn't require? Concentration. So you could be like, all we have to do is hit the conjuring wizard and it'll break the elemental's connection. So that means there's no concentration on that. Well, that that's part of the conversation you need to have too. That's a spell-like ability. Chris says, so why have counterspell at all? Don't. <laughs> I'm happy with counterspell not existing. Now, some, again, you might love it if you love counterspell. And I'll tell you, another option for you as a DM is let them be counterable, right? Sure, you counter it, right? Treat it roughly by the level range that you would expect. If somebody is casting Arcane Burst, you could say, sure, you can counter. It's an at-will ability. We'll pretend it's a cantrip. You can stop it, right? Now, keep in mind, like, spellcasting NPCs, they don't get a lot of turns. So if you counter their big thing, it's going to be a big deal, Right? But that is, to me, an issue. So I think it really only is an effect on NPC spellcasters like this, who they look like a wizard. They feel like a wizard, but they are not a wizard. And they don't, they're not calling it like an elementalist, right? They don't, they don't give it a name that makes it sound like, oh, this is a totally different kind of creature than I'm used to. It, it's, it's a wizard. I'm not going to get in the argument about whether you love Counterspell or not. If you love Counterspell, go with the gods, right? I'm not, I'm not telling you you shouldn't love Counterspell. I know I don't. And I know my players certainly don't like it when I counterspell them, right? No, counterspell is a, there's a fixed amount of fun with counterspell, which means the only fun you're going to get is by taking it from someone else. And I don't like taking fun from me and I don't like to take it away from them. So I have a feeling that like if, if counterspell went away, the world would be a happier, well, the world, my game would be a happier place. You might love it. And I'll tell you, look at the end of Critical Role and watch how counterspell can be an absolutely incredible, monumentous campaign changing effect. It changed everything. Two, two players fell into tears. The emotion that they had because of the way a counterspell had to play out. It's fantastic. It was amazing. So on, on the other side, counterspell can be pretty dramatic as well. It was then. It was crazy dramatic. But I know in my game, it just tends to be wet balloon. It just, it's, I, I'm, I'm sad when my spellcasting NPCs get counterspelled and players are sad when their spell gets counterspelled. It's kind of, it's kind of lame. So Salicious says, but are these stat blocks still better if they require work at the table? Well, do they require work at the table? That's the question. I think these are easier to run. Definitely. I look at the Conjurer Wizard. So to me, the Conjurer Wizard is going to run better because an interesting thing is it's CR6, but only with 58 hit points, which is pretty low. Do you know why it's CR6? Because as a bonus action, it summons an elemental. I think this, I think it feels to me, I haven't run it, but it feels to me like this Conjurer Wizard will run better as a monster, right? It runs better as a stat block. Is it a Conjurer Wizard? Again, I, I might refer to it as, I, I might give it a name that does not associate at all with something that's in the world, like Elementalist, right? But, the, you know, they, they have what they have. But I think it'll run better, A, because it can do, it on one round, uh, in one turn, it can throw three Arcane Blasts against three targets within 120 feet that do 20, almost, that do 19 points of damage each. That's a lot of damage at CR6. That's almost 60 points of damage, right? It's 57 points of damage at CR6. That's a lot of damage at CR6. That's high. That's probably might be too high, right? And and it could summon an elemental in the same turn because there's a bonus action. Like who can summon an elemental as a bonus action, right? No player can. You never give you would never allow a player to summon an elemental as a bonus action. But this creature's challenge rating accounts for that. I think this challenge rating is actually pretty low. 
because you're going to have this wizard who only has 58 hit points. Now, one thing is like, this is a big one, like kill the wizard, stop the elemental, right? Like that's a big one. But I still look at the stat block and go, that is an easier, that is an easier stat block, an easier stat block to run. Now we did talk about counterspell, getting back to the counterspell question. Why is Graz so hard to spell? Yay. So we're going to look at the new version of Grazed, right? CR24, because Grazd has a reaction called negate spell. Grazd tries to interrupt a spell he can see. Uh, he sees a creature casting within 60 feet. If the spell is third level or lower, it fails. This is exactly like counterspell, right? If it's fourth level or higher, Grazd makes a charisma check against a DC at 10, plus the spell's level on a success. The spell fails and has no effect. Would I still run that? And the answer is yeah. You know why? Because Grazd is a dick, right? Grazd does take fun from people and he's also cr24 and you're crazy powerful when you're facing him so it's not like you're going to do it all that often but that's one where i would say sure grazd graz can still do it he's a demon prince right he plays by different rules already so the idea that yeah he gets the ability to cast counterspell that's different right that's like solo yeah the legendary monsters being able to do so especially challenge rating 24 legendary monsters there is also a mind flare one of the mind flayers can also do a counter spell and that one you're like yeah but that's psychic damage that's, that's psionics right I, I would probably get away with it but even then i might say ah, if i told him i wasn't going to do counter spell i won't do counter spell one of the considerations when we look at all of these wizards who have these arcane bursts it's also kind of weird that they all call it arcane burst the same the name of the power is the same for all these guys, but it does different stuff. It does different attack rolls, it does different amounts of damage, and it does different types of damage. Psychic damage here, force damage here. There was a thing that Wizards said. This is, you know, I don't think anybody from Wizards is listening, but just in case, this is something Wizards said, that there was a, there was a time, there was this brief, like, two-month period where Wizards was taking spell descriptions and putting them in stat blocks. They would have Fireball, and it acted like a Fireball in a stat block. And then they came back and then the design documents that are on the DMs Guild, they said, we tried that and it was a mistake. And I don't know why it was a mistake. I think like, why wouldn't you have lightning bolt and fireball and spells? If you had the spell descriptions in these guys, they would be easier to run and they would still act like a wizard, right? And this is how level up advanced 5e does it. I talked about the monstrous menagerie, right? By Paul Hughes that we looked at, I've looked at now a couple of times. That one describes the spells in the stat block. And that means it's a spell, so it is counterspellable. It still operates the same way, only now it's easier to run because I know which spells I need to be paying attention to, right? I think that style works really well, and I'm kind of sad that they didn't keep up that style at Wizards of the Coast. And instead, they come up with a new ability called Arcane Burst, yet it's the same name of the ability. I guess it's like Longsword Attack. It, a, it loses flavor when you call it the same thing for everybody. And B, it's like, it's not helping me by calling it the same thing, but then making it do different stuff. I don't know. You know, I'm not, I'm, there, there might be better reasons that I don't understand, but I don't get that. But one thing to consider is almost all of these kinds of attacks are attacks against AC and they don't have half damage on a fail. So you're going to see that again, Enchanter Wizard makes three arcane burst attacks. Look at how CR5 doing 60 points of damage. Whew, right? It seems really high. But keep in mind, it's versus AC, which means armor class just got even better armor class was already really good and one of the common like hey i have a character i have a character who's optimized his ac he's got 26 ac i can never threaten him with anything what do i do one of the reactions was hit him with saving throws well now your wizards are also not using saving throws it's a kind of a bummer that you that it's not done on a saving throw this is very easily house rulable though so the question is like if you feel like wow all we're doing is just more attacks against ac now i've got a bunch of wizards and all they're doing is throwing attacks against ac it's really not feeling very wizard like you can convert this into a dc really easily right you take the attack bonus 
you add it to eight, and that's the DC. So a, an arcane burst, you might say three targets, DC 14. You might say dexterity check. You might look at the damage and say, is it dexterity? Is it wisdom? Is it, is it constitution? Right? Psychic damage, you might say it's charisma. Like you have to make a DC 14 charisma saving throw. On a fail, you take 19 points of psychic damage. On a, on a success, you take nine. And so you could convert those into mini single target bursts right that use dcs i kind of wish they had done that because i think we could use more variance in the the things that monsters are attacking we could use more monsters that are doing things other than attacking ac you could also put some kicker abilities on this that if they if they fail that something else happens so they do it somewhat right we have like overwhelming revelation uh burst of illumination 10 foot radius dc 15 wisdom saving throw right and on a failed 45 psychic damage whoa and stunned i don't like the stunned condition you can use my stun thing which is they can break out of it by taking more psychic damage you know so uh and this is my point right? that i tell you like should you buy it or not right if you have the old ones i feel like i'm still going to be modifying monsters right i still feel like at my table i'm going to look at these and go, like oh you know what i think it would be more fun to like it's pretty easy to run and i'll give it that but it might be more fun to run dcs instead of uh spell attacks because ac is you know it's ac the thing for everything right and more monsters attacking ac i don't know that that's really you know what i want for more on this topic if you are interested i think i've talked about all the stuff Oh, the last thing is about that high... I guess we'll talk about this too. So this came from an article that Brandis, uh, Brandis uh, Stoddard wrote. Brandis has been looking at... Ads. Ads. Brandis has been looking at Monsters of the Multiverse since it came out in the original box set. I think he got a... Uh, a preview copy of it. And he was looking at a lot of monsters. He helped, you know, he showed screenshots of it so that I could look at it. And I, when I first talked about it. And one of the things he talks about a lot is that one thing they have done here, and we're going to look at the red Abishai, and we're going to look at the new red Abishai, is it used to be, I think, if, let's look at the old one, right? If you look at the old red Abishai, it had this magic weapons trait. One line, magic weapons. The Abishai's weapon attacks are magical, right? And a lot of different extrapolanear monsters had this ability, that they're sort of magic, they're inherently magical. And so they had this extra line that, hey, their attacks are magical, right? And I think during their design process said, you know, is there a way we could get rid of this trait so we don't have to crud up a stat block with it? And their approach was, yeah. What if instead of saying that their attacks are magical, we let them do force damage with weapon attacks? And so you will see things like this claw, right? And the claw attack plus 12 to hit one target. It does 17 force damage plus 11 fire damage. So even though it's a claw attack, it's not slashing damage. It's force damage, right? And that way it's sort of bypassing any magical resistance that something might have. Like I think if you have stone skin or something like that, it would break through. But the this is where it gets weird, right? So, okay, that seems really elegant. It seems like, hey, we got rid of a whole line of text that talks about the weapons being magical you know and i'm all for reducing i'm all for reducing the words on a stat block to make it as easy as possible to run but was this the right answer because now a i have this cognitive breakdown in my brain again where like it's not force damage it's slashing damage it's a claw attack right why is the bite attack right plus 12 to hit 22 piercing damage and 38 fire damage which is a good good deal of damage for a bite attack right why is that not force and this is force and by the way i thought force damage was stuff like magic missiles i thought it was arcane energy getting thrown around not a physical claw attack right like 
that's weird. And, and, and where this affects big one is barbarians because barbarians can resist a lot of stuff except force. I think there's probably other groups that can resist this stuff, which means another conversation. Hey, just so you know, when you reach higher levels, there are certain extra planar monsters that are going to look like they're doing physical damage to you, but instead they're doing force damage to you. I want you to be aware of that. Right. And if you don't do that, you can have this conversation where the red Abishai slashes you with his claw attack. He hits you for 17 force damage and you're like force. I should resist it. I'm it's a claw. And you're like, no, this is a force claw. What, what the hell is that? Right. It's this breakdown between this, what's happening in the world, getting clawed. Right. And what mechanic you're using, which is force. That felt weird to me. And the Abishai, the Abishai is one where, where, where that brings out, you know, there's this conversation and you know, what's going to happen. You know, you're going to have a barbarian player is going to get hit with force damage from a claw attack and be like, what the hell is that? And I think somebody else brought it. Was it Brandis who brought it up? Let me, let me look in the article that he, that he, that he talked about where like force damage used to be. Yeah. Right here. Right. In the player's handbook description, it says force is pure magical energy. Focused in a damaging form. Most effects that deal force damage are spells, including magic missile and spirit weapon. And he brings up, not anymore. Now there's a whole slew of monsters that do force damage just by hitting you with their weapon attack. I get it. And it's, you know, are we nitpicking about small stuff? Probably. This is probably a small nitpick. But it's one of these areas where like the story of the game is breaking down for me because in mechanics should be supporting the story. That mechanic doesn't support the story because they are slashing with their claw, right? What does it mean? Like the fact that their claw is a magical weapon, I, I buy that because they are magical creatures. That's why they have magic resistance. They have this other stuff. But the fact that they're doing force damage, that's weird because force damage doesn't feel like something you can do with a claw attack, right? It's odd. So that, you know, Brandis, Brandis talks about this a lot in this article. I guess he's, this is a four-part series. I guess in the previous three parts, he was talking about the character options. I will link to this article in the show notes below if you want to read more about Monsters of the Multiverse. My point with this, again, is not to bitch and complain about uh, Morden Canyon's Tome of Foes. My point is that as DMs, some of these things we need to be thinking about because of how they're going to affect our game. And some of it is like spellcasters that are doing a lot more attacks versus AC you know, consider that because AC is going to become more valuable than it was before. A lot? I don't know. AC was already pretty valuable, but now even more so. It's like, well, saves really aren't as important because monsters are just, even even spellcasters are attacking AC. Also, you have to have the conversation about counter spells and not being, either not being able to do it for those or deciding that they can go ahead and do it. You got to make that choice. And force damage for barbarians and stuff like that. These are all things we need to consider because the game is changing under our feet. Can we complain about it? Sure. You could also not use it, right? Again, you could use the old Volos and Morning Canons, right? You don't have to play with it. I'm going to because I like the design. I like that they're fast. I like that they're easy to run. I like that they have they support my uh, yeah, a style that I love, which is theater of the mind. There's a lot of stuff going on there that I like. So I dig it. Let's talk about Patreon questions. Every month I on Patreon, I put up a thread and I say, ask any questions. And then I answer all those questions on Patreon. Some of those I like to bring to the show. So let's look at our Patreon questions. Steven W says, do you have any tips for a DM to step out of the DM seat and enjoy the game again as a player? I find myself analyzing the game through a DM's perspective. Moreover, is there a good and respectful way to give feedback to your DM? If I'm, a, if I'm in a game playing and I show signs of trouble, like because of inexperience or adversarial DMing, is it okay to show how to solve it? I'm afraid it sounds condescending or like I'm imposing my way of how to run a game. That's two questions, Stephen, but I'll, I'll give you this one, but that's two. So first question, and how do you step out and what can you do? Be, be the kind of player you want to have at your table. 
is the easiest way. But what are some specifics? Well, A, be a support character. Support the, the thread of the campaign, right? Don't build your character that's like wants to go do stuff and you're not supporting the theme of the campaign. Write a character and build your background to support the theme of the campaign that your DM is running. All right, these are good player tips, period. But they're good player tips for DMs who are going to play in someone else's game. Try to support it. Be a support character. Play with the other characters. Support the other characters. Be a sidekick to somebody else, right? Don't, don't make your own character the, the focus and the spotlight. Build both in mechanics and in story. Build a character that supports the other characters. Take notes. Be the note taker. Be the one to really be paying attention and taking notes about what's going on in the game. Share those notes with the other players. Make yourself share the notes because it makes you take better notes, right? But that helps you concentrate on the game. This is all tricks that I use, right? It helps you concentrate on the game. Do all that. Do all that kind of thing. So those are all. Those are three. There's more, of course, but those are like three tricks for being a good. Uh, player as a working for another DM. Be the kind of player you wish you had at your table or maybe you have at your table, right? But be the note taker, build support characters, support the theme of the campaign. Those are really good. So offering feedback, I would not offer feedback. I would offer feedback in two circumstances. One, you know that the person you're giving the feedback to is 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 open to accepting that feedback, right? And you know that you're, you're, the relationship you have is such that you can say things and then it, and it's not it's not it's not going to upset them. It's not going to make them feel like they're bad DM. Two, they ask you, they ask you for it. If you don't have those two, I would keep your feedback to yourself, right? I would, you know, I don't, you know. DMing is a creative enterprise, right? And for a lot of people, it's the only creative enterprise they have in their lives. And so if you go and attack the creative enterprise, it's almost not going to go well most of the time. So you want to be really careful, right? You want to wait till they ask. And if they ask, know how to bring the results. Again, don't address the DM, address the situation. Sometimes I feel like X is true. You can offer advice for you. Like, what do you want? Right. And say things like, I really, you know, I feel like we're in a lot of combats. I would love to see more scenes where we do more role playing and exploration that doesn't result in combat. Right. So, so that, you know, you can, you can do things like that, you know, offering recommendations about what you would like to enjoy. Again, thinking about the game, not attacking the player or not attacking the DM. That's really important, but it can, if you are offering advice to them, it can sound condescending if they didn't ask for it. And if you are not recognizing that, you know, they are a DM too, and they're able to do what they want to do. They're also in charge, right? They're the DM. You can say, you can run it however you want. You know, I know one thing I like to do is X because we all do differently. Steven, I hope that answers your question. Good, good question. Ian R says, I'm struggling with creating a new campaign for my players as we get near to the finale of um, Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. The problem relates to a topic you've discussed before, the reliance on using DD Beyond. I'd love to play using one of several third-party offerings, but it seems that such a huge effort to manage this online easily for myself and my players. Do you have any suggestions for how to simplify playing third-party campaigns and still benefiting from D&D Beyond? Yes. So the only part of D&D Beyond that really, really matters and really, really helps is running character sheets. It's nice to have monsters in D&D Beyond. It's nice to have the encounter builder system in D&D Beyond, but it's not that much harder to have a physical book in front of you and roll dice with the monster stat blocks right in front of you. It's also not hard to have a PDF of a campaign setting and be running off of that PDF instead of running it from the campaign setting you have in D&D Beyond. It's really nice to have a D&D Beyond and it's really cool to have it there, but you really don't need it. But the mechanics of character sheet stuff, particularly when players used to running with characters on dnd beyond it's hard to add third-party stuff that's where it's really difficult to add third-party content right because you have to custom make everything i really hand that over to the players 
right? Like, A, I would suggest, like, if, so let's say you want to run a Midgard campaign, Cobalt Press is Midgard. I don't think it's hard to use the Midgard source book. I don't think it's hard to use any of the Tome of Beast monsters because you can just keep them in front of you. You can either use the PDFs or you can use the, the physical books. And, you know, you don't have to use the Encounter Builder. It's pretty easy to track Encounter stuff outside of D&D Beyond. It's also easy to put, like, placeholder monsters in the Encounter Builder and then know that, well, okay, I'm not using that step like I'm using this one. You can kind of do that. But I don't think D&D Beyond has quite the same level of lock-in on Encounter on campaigns and on monsters that it does for character options because it started kind of first and foremost as a character tool right and if you say i want people to be able to choose character options from midgard heroes right you can still offer that and say i'd like you know you can choose options from midgard heroes keep in mind you're either gonna have to custom build them in dnd beyond or use a physical character sheet instead of an online character sheet and it's up to them right? They can choose if they want, if the options are worth it or not. They can choose to either try to do it in beyond, which is pretty hard, or use a physical character sheet, which is what I would recommend. I think we forget that we spent three or four years playing fifth edition of D&D before there was D&D Beyond. So it's not like you need D&D Beyond to play. A lot of people love it. A lot of people like the auto rolling. A lot of people like how it breaks things out, but you don't need it. You can use a physical character sheet. I've done it. It's actually a lot of fun to use a physical character sheet. It kind of reminds you about what D&D was like, and it kind of ties back to the 50-year legacy of this game. So grabbing, grabbing a physical character sheet and, and writing it isn't bad. And I'll give you one huge tip for working uh, with a physical character sheet that will help you considerably write the page numbers down of spells and abilities that when you keep like a spell log and you have the spells that you have memorized for each next to each spell write down the page number where that spell is found so that when you're playing you can easily go to the page number of the book and find the spell description it's not a hard thing to do when you're making your character sheet and it helps you significantly at the table i've talked to other uh creators other other people in this industry who have said that like they feel like the reliance on D&D Beyond is actually making players not as skilled at running their characters as if they would actually pull out books and read it. I, I, I don't know. I, you know I, I would need to do more research in this, but I certainly think there's something about getting closer to your character when you're writing it with a character sheet. So you could say, hey, we're going to be playing Midgard. We're going to be playing mid with Midgard Heroes as an option, and I would recommend that you use a physical character sheet instead of using D&D Beyond for this for the sheet. It's not the end of the world, right? And it's not that much worse, right? It's it's it still makes you feel you know closer to to D&D. I would I would argue. The other option is to put things in D&D Beyond and customize it. But but that is, that that idea, the, the one area of lock-in that I think D&D Beyond really has that's hard to deal with is character options. Monsters, I'm not too worried about. I don't think it's hard for a DM to run monsters that aren't in Beyond. Car encounter building, the tool is getting better all the time, but I can run encounters without it. I've ran encounters without it for a long time and it's not, it's certainly not insurmountable. And, and certainly campaign stuff, obviously physical books, PDFs, you can, you can run those for campaigns all the time. So Ian, I hope that kind of adds some thoughts. Roland L has a related question, which is I'm looking into DMing more vir via a virtual tabletop. However, I have, I'm having decision paralysis on deciding on a specific platform, Foundry, Roll20, Fantasy Grounds, because I'm unsure how Watsi will move forward after their acquisition of d, &D Beyond. Currently, all of my content is on D&D Beyond. I'm nervous to invest heavily in Foundry if Watsi stops allowing data to be imported from D&D Beyond. For Roll20 Fantasy Grounds, I would have to rebuy all the content, but then still be at risk of having Watsi pull their license. Any of advice on choosing a VTT given the current and future landscape? Well, we don't know what the future holds, so I can't I can't speak to that. I'm not I'm I don't know I don't know. I would I would probably put the odds against them pulling the licenses to current material. But it's very possible they might not put out new material and it could happen. Uh, I think you have to look at two levels of investment when you're looking at a VTT. One, money. How much does it cost? 
That includes the cost of buying material to support that VTT. And two, your time and energy in learning and becoming a, an expert in using that VTT. You're, you're increasing your expertise in using that VTT. Both of those are levels of investment worth considering. And you can look at it and say it's worth it or it's not, right? And you can look at like, which are the safer ones? I think, so because I think Foundry and Roll20, and I think all of them are relatively safe. I probably would not, well, no, I don't want to say this because I don't think that that, you're, you're certainly less risky buying material on D&D Beyond and using tools like Beyond 20 or the tool for, for Foundry that imports it from D&D Beyond. You're probably financially safer buying your stuff in D&D Beyond and using the connections to those other VTTs than you are buying the material in another platform you're probably not at much risk though i i don't i would not be that a, i wouldn't think that the risk is that great buying material for roll 20 it's a little bit riskier but i don't know that it's tremendously risky if you already own all your material in dd beyond i would probably not buy it again somewhere else and because there are ways to bring it over beyond 20 lets you bring dd beyond stuff into roll 20 uh, i know that there's a foundry plugin that takes dd beyond material and brings it into foundry Th those things exist Fan fantasy grounds i don't know if there's a somebody can tell me in the chat if there's a way for or beyond 20 works for foundry okay cool does is there a similar thing where you can get your dnd beyond material in fantasy grounds i don't i don't know that one and then of course there's other tools albear rodeo i am 100 percent sure watsi is not going to be able to pull their license from albear rodeo because they don't have one albear rodeo is completely independent to the platform so if you get used to using albear rodeo you're going to be fine. Above VTT is a, a virtual tabletop that I previewed a couple shows back. And Above VTT sits on top of D&D Beyond directly. It is not a separate tool. It operates with D&D Beyond. It is not owned by D&D Beyond. So there's a risk there, but their only risk is expertise because you don't really have to pay for it. You can support the Patreon and you should support the Patreon, but you're not really paying for a tool. So you don't have to worry about the license disappearing or something like that. So I would say, look at it. I would probably not spend hundreds of dollars buying new material on something else in, unless you really love that platform and you don't have D&D Beyond. If you're already invested in Roll20, continuing to invest in Roll20, I think is fine. Same thing with Fantasy Grounds. But if you already have your stuff in D&D Beyond, you probably want to either use plugins with some of the other tools or something like that. But other than that, then after that, the risk is relatively low. You're going you're gonna to have to learn a new tool if something went away. You're going to lose maybe 50 bucks if you have to buy a tool. But I, I don't know that that's a big deal. The big deal would be having all of the material on that platform. Roland, I hope that answers your question. Sam M says, I'm feeling overwhelmed in my first homebrew campaign. I wanted it to run about level 10 or 11 and the party just hit six, so we're halfway through. But it feels like there's so many open threads and subplots. There's certain beats I want to hit and villain, major villain plots I want to defeat, resolve, but I still want to keep it sandboxy and leave it to the players as to what they do and where they go. How do you actually go about narrowing down my yam? I don't know what yam is. Is that game? I wonder if narrowing down my yam. Oh, the yam-shaped adventure. Yes, of course. How do you narrow down the yam? Well, yeah, so you do it, right? You, you narrow it down. So think about, I, li I like to think about Stephen King and what he said with The Stand, right? Uh, Stephen King wrote the book, The Stand. He was halfway through, 400, 500 pages into this thousand page book. And he's like, I have way too many characters. I have way too many plot threads. I have way too much stuff going on. I don't know what to do. And he was getting ready to throw the book away. And he's like, I've already written 500 words though. I can't throw it away at this point, but it's just this sprawling, crazy mass. And you know what he did? He blew up, he blew up a building and killed half the characters right so you can look at it and say how do you narrow you know and then he had four characters the four four remaining main characters go on a quest to head to vegas and stop the end of the world right so blow blow up your campaign 
right? You can, you, you know, have consider that's one option, right? You don't have to, you don't know, listen to me and blow it up. 500, no, sorry, 500 pages. He wrote 500 pages of his book, 500 words. That's nothing. So consider like, how do you, how can you do an in-campaign shift and refocus on the main goal, refocus on what's going on, take some of the subplots and have them just get resolved, right? Focus things down and get back to that main arc, right? Get back to the main thing. So that is a, that, that's certainly one way to do it. Look at all of you said you have certain beats with major villains and plots. Get rid of the minor ones, right? With the open threads, find some way to get rid of those open threads. Find some event that occurs that narrows everything down, right? Or tie those up really quickly and then get to whatever the main thread is. But that's one approach. I don't know if it's a great one, but Sam, I hope that uh, gives you some ideas. Think about blowing up, think about blowing up your campaign. Andy R says, I'm getting ready to run the final battle of Curse of Strahd. I love the way you think about monsters and was thrilled to read your article on running Strahd from Zarovich from 2016. It's excellent. And I plan to take a lot of your suggestions. Do you have any final words or advice or updates on your 2016 article? So I went and took a look. You can find the link to the running Strahd. Let's take a look. It says running Curse of Strahd, but where's running Strahd? Strahd's negotiation, running Strahd von Zarovich. So this is about running him as a monster. I think a lot of the advice that I have in here, I read through it, but you can see it all, you can see it all below. A lot of the advice in here I still like. You could certainly think of it in a Matt Colville action-oriented design, which is, you know, think about like the, the rounds of combat that Strad has and what he does. How does he position himself? How does he escape if he gets pinned down? And how can he sort of explode and do a, a, you know, do something really monumental in the final battle? One neat thing about running Strahd is you can run Strahd in different phases. You could actually have like his crazy bat phase. You could have his crazy wolf phase and you could have his humanoid phase, right? You could have him shapeshift into these different things and sort of run it as three consecutive battles, almost like a mythic a mythic version that could that could certainly work but all of the advice that stands here still still stands tweak the dials on the hit points you know uh, consider con uh, i don't know about the armor increasing armor classes is never good the trick with strad though is how do you deal with blindness it's very easy for strad to get blinded right and i would consider uh, a, a lot of of what strad can do to limit vision for everybody so that he is not at disadvantage the whole time but you can kind of go back and forth like that but I offer, I offer some of these, you know, the monstrous final form, you know, that really kind of hits that, that idea of, of sort of the, 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 the gaze. The other one is the beguiling gaze. I really like that instead of having him charm, giving him a bonus action where he can make gaze at a character. And as a reaction to that character, that character sh moves over and attacks an ally, right? As a one thing, it doesn't take agency away from the player, but it's still a really powerful way to use that charm and make the charm feel like it's something. So those are my my big options for running Strahd. I hope that uh, gives you some ideas. Craig C says, I've been struggling, I've been in a struggle to get more information out to my players so they understand the situation of what the villains are up to. But I've improved, but I'm looking for more. I like secrets and clues, but I find I struggle to get them out in a session. You've got... Uh, You've got an answer about NPCs villains revealing their plans uh, in the archive, but I'm wondering what other ways you have to make sure PCs are discovering what's going on in every session. This, you know, it gets back to the same, it gets back to the same topic of, you know, tell, tell things, right? Tell the players things. It's okay for villains, heralds, secret notes, rumors around towns that just say like, I've heard that they've started digging in that old ruin out by the side, a whole bunch of people there. And they're all wearing the weird necklace that has the symbol of your villain on it, right? Be overt. Don't, don't, you don't hold the cards close because players are only understanding about half of what you're saying anyway. So 
reveal clues, reveal it multiple times, you know, keep the clues. If you want clues that are revealing the plans and you didn't get them out in the next session or last session, put them in the new session. Right. But I, I think that we can all lean towards revealing more than revealing less. I think we have a tendency to try to keep things back and reveal more, be, be, be free, be free, revealing, revealing more. We're going to try to get through all the remaining questions today. So we're going to do, we got, was that seven more questions? Something like that. We're going to, we're going to hit him. Let's do them. Mike C says, with all the Kickstarters you back, do you allow your players to choose character options from them? If so, do you allow any classes outside the official ones? I have not allowed classes outside the official ones. And I, I, I this is one where I am a total hypocrite. I just talked about, hey, you can run uh, with character options from outside stuff, but I typically run with D&D Beyond and I typically say you can use Tasha's as Anathars except for uh, Peace Cleric and Twilight. But I've also been running Watsi campaign adventures too, for the most part. And when I run more Midgard stuff, I'm going to offer Midgard options and I'm going to do what I, what I talked about previously which is i'm going to allow players to use material from those guides and leave it up to them to decide to either use physical character sheets or to use or to add the stuff to dnd beyond and there'll probably be some grumbling right but such is life we, we can't I, I i wish it was in there but it's not and they don't have to choose it if you're like i don't want to have that problem pick the core stuff right that's fine but one thing that i think about this is like you know i'm a dm i need help and and i can't put all the stuff in there for players, right? I've already, I'm too busy already. So I need the player's help to decide how they're going to do that when I offer those options, but I'm not going to let D&D Beyond limit the options that I reveal, especially when I'm running a campaign that is, that exists in a setting and a offer for that setting. Justin C says this summer I'm running a D&D camp with 20 kids and three DMs. The plan is to split them up into three parties, but they'll be starting as one big group and coming together at the end for a big epic battle, big epic battle against the big bad and a bunch of minions. Any suggestions for avoiding total chaos and keeping the action moving? Yes. Uh, I recommend that you take a D&D epic or D&D approach style or D&D open style approach. If you look at D&D Adventurers Link, uh, D&D Adventurers League, they have these things called epics and opens. And these are multi-table events. And the way they work, the simple way that they work is you're still in individual groups and you still have a DM for each table, but there's one event going on. So the invasion of Candlekeep was one of them. Going to, you know, all going up to the the rock of whatever, the, the rock, the, the big floating space city rock uh, above the Forgotten Realms, right? That there are have one event where each group is doing one part of it. I've written some of these. I think I've written two of these in the past. Vault of the Dracolich, the one that I wrote with Scott Gray and Teo Sabadia, are both, that is a multi-table event. You can take a look at that one. And basically what you have happen is the different groups are doing different things, but there are certain events that are sweeping around and hitting all the tables. It's often like a boss monster that comes by lasts one turn and then flies away that you know if you want to imagine that like a bunch of draconic forces are attacking Candlekeep, but there's also a dragon that's flying around and like breathing on certain groups or clawing and slashing in certain groups and the whole groups are trying to like every time it comes by a table they try to hit it and do damage the other cool thing is you can have groups at different tiers so take a look at uh dnd epics and dnd opens you can read about them certainly online you can also i think pick them up on the dms guild and that shows you what multi-table events are like and that's how I'd run it. I would separate them. You know, D&D &D does not work when you have 20 players in one game, I don't think. So it's far better to say, 
have groups of six and had each of those groups of six doing a certain thing that is affecting a larger story. The successes of each group are leading to a larger success in the story. It's a lot of fun and, and it works well. Bram M says, after reaching the fabled 20th level, my players have chosen our next campaign to be set in Theros. Congratulations on a 20th level campaign. There are not many people who have gotten all the way to 20th level in D&D. So consider consider that that's a really awesome thing. Really awesome, awesome accomplishment. Uh, I'm trying to find what makes them feel like mythical heroes. And I thought about spending Spending gold, not on big things, but spending gold on buying arrows, a meal, a throwing axe. Do you make your players count coppers? Could could it work if we hand wave the little things and told the gold that they found is the gold that they have extra? Do you have any? How do you ha, how do you pay for tavern visits and lesser gear upgrades? I don't know about Theros, but no, I don't make people count that stuff, right? I think that the heroic version of D&D in my, the way I like to run it is, you know, oftentimes they get extra gold, but then I like to look, what are the big things they could spend gold on? In Theros, what temple can they support where they have to build up the temple so they can really speak to whatever their god of whatever patron they have? What are big ships that they have to buy in order to get from place to place? What are big places that they have to do? There's there's big things that the characters can spend their gold on. Like, you know, influence in a town, spy guilds, you know, think about the big things that they can spend spend their money on political buying off political power this could cost a lot of money right and they could have to get money to do it on top of like maybe there are opportunities for them to buy the information they need in order to learn about a magic item maybe somebody knows where the vaulted vorpal sword is but in order to buy it it's going to be twenty thousand gold for them to give up that information right that could be that could be kind of the thing so so no i do not i do not nitpick about about rations and stuff like that i will in a normal DD game like a non-theros game i would certainly say like you know, they can, they, you know, all the material that exists in the player's handbook exists for player's handbook prices. Anything that you want to buy, feel free to spend your gold and buy it, right? And then I don't worry about it. But I will ask, like, hey, you're in a dungeon. Oh, we want to seal the door. Well, do you have any pythons? No, I didn't buy any. Mm-hmm. Right. So I want them to manage their inventory, but I don't, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Jamie G says, I struggle with finding good moments to level my players when using milestones and keeping a satisfying tempo of levels flowing. Do you have any tips for how to feel, feel out handling out levels? Matt Colville had a really good video where he talked about these kinds of rewards and he made them very explicit. And I've started doing this. When you reach a certain event, like in my Numenera game, which I was just talking about, when you reach a certain event, you can... You, you level and you tell the players that like when they have rescued the nanos from Amberfall, they will reach the next tier, right? I'll, I'll say that uh, in my Wild Beyond the Witchlight game, I tell them like once you, once you face, once you reach Bevlorna's lair, you gain a level. Once you reach the next section of the game, you'll also gain a level. And I write a little card up in word paste it into my discord server so they can see it and that oh that's our quest so it's a quest and a reward and the quest is what they have to accomplish the reward is you will earn a level so you can kind of make yourself do that right and by you doing that, it, it solidifies the game. They know what they have to do. They know what the goal is. They know what they get when they get there. It's To me, it's a good way of, of, of handling that. So that's what I would recommend. Uh, I will link to that show, to Matt Colville's dis- discussion of this in the show notes below. Miles says, in the latest Numenera prep, the one the, the characters had the big backstory that you needed to tug on. Could you elaborate on your methods for drawing out backstory development for the characters like this? I don't really have, I'm not good at it. One thing is like, I like fire. I, I, I talked about like the campfire stories where like you take a moment where you have some downtime and you say like, what is your, you know, what, what moment from your character's past comes to mind when you're thinking about what's going on. So campfire stories can do it. You can just ask them like, you know, you can ask them offline. Like, hey, you know, I don't really have a bunch of information about your character, like from the background, like what, what with the events that are going on now, what can kind of come from your background? There's also some players who just really don't really care that much about the background of the characters. You don't need to make them care about it. They're happy with what's going 
going on in the current story. So you can want to play with that too. But yeah, try the campfire stories where it, you know at a campfire you say, okay, you're going to take a short rest. During this rest, let's go around. What thoughts do you have from your past or your history that, that come to mind when you're thinking about where you currently are in the game, right? And then who wants to start and then ask and then kind of go around and ask. And they might say, I don't know. I'm just happy with what's going on. Be prepared for that. Andy says, I have a player who loves to play chaotic characters. Uh-oh. Uh, their favorite thing to do is run off, open chests, open doors before anyone else, be rude to NPCs, and generally get up to mischief. I'm totally not sure how to handle this, as I feel like there should be consequences for such recklessness. But then, is it punishing the player for acting that way? It's also potentially punishing the rest of the party, who would prefer a more cautious approach. I know others get irritated by this one's recklessness. Do you have advice? So, I, I don't, you know... Session zero is always a important thing where you say, and, and this is where that, that line of like, you work in cooperation with the other players to s accomplish this goal, right? And I wire that into the characters during character creation, right? Whatever they're making, you are working with your other character. You're, you're working together as a group to, to help the people of 10 towns survive the endless night, right? Or to support, to, to defend the city of El Terrell from the forces of, of, of the, from the forces of hell, right? That you wire into the character, the motivation for the campaign, but also the fact that they're working in cooperation with the other players before they've made a character. So that way they don't start with, oh, well, my character really is a loner and doesn't like people. They, they enjoy their lives. What character does, right? But in this situation, sitting down with the player and saying, look, as a DM, outside a character, I'm really not enjoying how this is playing out at the table. And I would, you know, the one opportunity is what sort of redemption can your character find? What situation does your character find that changes them to be more cooperative with the other players and realize what's going on? That is a big one. If it's really adversarial, yeah, then you gotta you gotta do all the group management stuff, which we talked about before as well. Like, how do you you know deal with it? Now, another part though is there's sometimes where there's a character who's a bit of of, of, of a recluse, a big character that's like a bit more out there, and it's moving the story forward, and the players are okay with it because like, oh, this is fun. They're the one always getting hit by a trap. They're the one that's always like grabbing the cursed book, but it's moving the story forward, right? They're being like, if everybody else is being too cautious, having the one character who's like, oh yeah, I'll walk in, that sometimes can be a big propellant for the game. So it's not always terrible, but it really depends on your situation. But you know, a conversation outside a game is probably very useful. One-on-one -on -one conversation outside a game, see how that goes. But then the other one is during session zeros, wire into the characters that they are working together in cooperation. The other one you could say is like anytime, you know, pause for a minute, are we okay with that? You know, use the pause for a minute idea, right? Pause for a minute outside a character. Are we good with that? What they're doing? And if you say no, I say, I think you need to find a way to do it so that everybody's happy. I've done that before. It works really well. So, so Andy, I hope that helps. Take a look at pause for a minute. Take a look at the session zeros uh, and hopefully that helps. Jason K says, do you recognize, how do you recognize GM burnout and how do you suggest people recover from it? Have you ever suffered from GM burnout? That's two questions, Jason, but we'll, they're, they're both related. So we'll go for it. This is a good question. I don't really have a fantastic answer to it. There are other people who have talked about what GM burnout is like. Obviously, if like you're dreading preparation for your game, if you're dreading going into your game, that's probably a sign that something needs to go. And often what I have heard, I, 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 I asked, we talked about this a lot on Discord and I talked about it, I think on Twitter, and a lot of people just said taking a break, right? And two or three sessions off, take a month, maybe play another game or, or just take a break, right? And step away from it and reset yourself. 
reset your base. Looking at the situation and asking like, why do I feel this way? Like sometimes, so you ask if I have burnout. I, I haven't had burnout. I haven't been like, oh my God. But I definitely feel like, oh, well, I've got a game I'm running in 45 minutes today. I'm also really busy, right? And I've certainly had it where like, more so than burnout was when my game got canceled instead of feeling like, oh man, that really sucks. I was like, oh, thank God I get an evening off. I've certainly felt that, but I also really love getting together with my friends to play. And and I would still much rather have the game happen than not happen. So I don't think I've ever suffered true burnout, right? But what I've heard from people who have is they, they sometimes they just need to, they need to reset something, reset the campaign, reset the players, reset themselves. That's some, you know, looking and taking a break. Why do I feel this way? Now, there could also be other, and I'm not going to, Mike Shea, couch psychologist here, right? There could be other issues at play. If you have other things going on in your life that are really stressful and that stress is bleeding over and the game is another obligation that you've got trying to figure out like is that stress important or not i had a a friend who got who got covid right and she said like she's got all the stress stress. she's got two little kids right she's all the kinds of things going on and she said i'm just looking forward to fighting some monsters today we're playing online and she's like i've I've, you know it's her birthday right sorry right and and she said like i just want to take a break I just want to enjoy this game, right? And it's like, it takes time and it takes energy to even to play, right? And certainly to DM, but sometimes that's the break you need to get away from the other things that are going on in your life. So that's a hard one to deal with. I don't, I, you know, don't, don't, don't take it. But I've heard people that say, take, take, if you really feel it, like it is a game, it's for fun, right? But, you know, the only danger is it's also one opportunity we have to be socially connected with our friends. Are we isolating ourselves if we're stopping it? That That's something to consider, right? So, so lots of lots of thoughts there tur l says can you recommend any fifth edition adventure where there is a significant plot twist that will boggle the minds of the players think christopher nolan's the others sixth sense or the players realizing they're the antagonists so this is an area where i think that fiction doesn't support the kind of games that we run there are certain types of games or certain types of fiction that are situation-based pieces of fiction deadwood is a situation-based story and we can, we can learn a lot from those situations when we're running it. But when you have a plot twist that's in mind before the characters have started, you, I, I feel like you're already taking agency away from the players to make the, to drive the story. If there's already a thing that's in place that they can't change, that's going to shift, yet you telling a story, right? And that's not the story un- happening. The cool bit is when the story shifts and nobody knew it, including you. My story jumped 14 months in the future. I didn't know that was going to happen. It was a huge shift. It was a huge Christopher Nolan style jump, right? Huge, like, you know, M. Night Shyamalan style, holy cow moment. But it happened on its own. I didn't plan it. Sometimes if you have a boss that gets killed far too easily and it turns out they weren't the boss at all. Sometimes you'll have an idea halfway into your game. You go, oh, what if this was true? The power, the power of the words, what if? Really, really powerful words for, for a dungeon master, right? What if this is true? And instead of having a plan of, and then it will be revealed that the king is the bad guy all along, let the game go the direction and they say, Ooh, what if the king was a bad guy? And that at that moment is when you can turn that dial because it, it fits that situation and it's cool and it's fun. But don't do it to take away agency from the players. And generally, a surprise like this is going to be really hard to plan out later. I'll, I, I bring up the example from my Ghost of Salt Marsh game where we had a secret organization, the Scarlet Brotherhood, right? Scarlet Brotherhood was a secret organization inside Salt Marsh and they were invading stuff. And I knew it was there and I knew eventually the players are going to uncover it, but I didn't really know how. And then they released a vampire and the vampire became friends with them and said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to offer you something up. There's a secret society here, right? 
And he revealed the whole network because he had charmed everybody. So he charmed like a whole like a whole section of the network he had charmed. And he said, let me give you this. Fo-. And it was a huge shift in the story because they suddenly became all at once found out that like allies that they were connected to, NPCs that they had been working for, people in town, half the council. They found out all these people were working for this evil organization at once. That was a really cool moment, right? So look for those moments. instead of Instead of trying to plan out a big surprise, Run your game, let it flow, and find those interesting moments and grab onto them. And they might be scary, 14 months jump in the story, might be scary at the moment, but ask yourself, what if that was true? And run with it. I think that, that can really work. My friends, I want to thank you all for hanging out with me today to talk about this awesome hobby of ours. If you enjoyed this show, you can help me out by uh, subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, supporting me directly on Patreon, picking up any of my books, and subscribing to my videos on YouTube. Thank you all so much. Have a great day, and get out there and play some D&D.